I'll go even further. Like, so they, they kill the people. They don't get any consequences, which obviously doesn't prevent it in the future. And if they do get consequences, not only are they small, but they can generally get the same job someplace else afterwards. And so, you know, and I keep hearing defund the police, defund the police. I was actually talking to my, my really close friend about it the other day. Nobody's explaining what that means. And so it's causing confusion on both sides because the people who want something done are just like, oh, well, it means take money away. But money where? In the department, in equipment, in their salaries? Are we having less police? Which also causes fear on the other side of it, which is, oh, my God, now we won't have enough police or whatever. Nobody's really, really taking time to decimate that and explain exactly what defund the police means. Because just on its surface, holding a sign, defund the police, at first sight means we're going to take money away from the police department and people are making their own like conclusions. Um, one thing that's actually trying to happen in Oakland and that is happening in other parts of California. And apparently they have a program like that in Oregon as well is they're taking funds and they're creating alternative emergency responses so that the police show up to the violent policey things. But when there's a mental health crisis, or when there's a domestic violence case, or when there's something that does not require armed forces, they send or try to send the appropriate team. Oh, look, it's a mental health crisis. We'll send mental health professionals to deal with it. And if it gets violent, yeah, we'll include the cops. I personally am of the opinion, well, then if the police just want to police, let's train them better to do that police type position. And then let's take away the non-necessary police things from them and assign other people to go out and take care of those costs. Like that's, that's kind of the way I feel like we sort of reorganize the police department. So it works for all of us. So that maybe somebody like George Floyd, who is quite obviously high on drugs, maybe instead of the cops dealing with him at first, we have, you know, a mental health professional or someone who's, you know, trained in like, um, addiction to deal with him first. Maybe he gets detoxed before he gets talked to. He was obviously having a mental crisis that he didn't want to get into the police car. Maybe somebody recognizes that as a mental health crisis as opposed to resisting the police. And we have less violent encounters. With regard to escalation or de-escalation, which is one of the things we're seeing, and it obviously goes back to training um, and, and education for the departments, you know, it's something that, you know, friends of mine that are, that are nurses and doctors and work in ERs, they deal with mental health issues and, and the need to de-escalate people that are high on drugs, people that are injured, you know, people that are having psychotic episodes all the time. And they do it without ever tasing or having to shoot anyone because it's part of the training that they get over, you know, years of how to deal um, with, you know, uh, violence de-escalation because, you know, I mean... <laughs> When, when, when you carry a gun all the time, you know, everything starts to look like a target, it would seem. And that's the first response that people have is instead of like, you know, using the words, you know, it's hand on the pistol. And I understand that it's, it's a dangerous and scary situation a lot of times, but a lot of that goes to tone of, you know, goes back to tone of voice, um, you know, the way in which you just uh, initially approach, you know, uh, a person, almost it's suspect, but, you know, anyone on the street, um, you can you know, make that a very simple thing into, 
you know, um, a, a use of lethal force situation that they're going to walk away from in just a matter of seconds. You see it happen all the time. Um, and the other thing uh, with regard to policing that, you know, what we've seen this increased militarization and, and the selling of, you know, very high end, I mean, local police departments are, are driving Humvees, you know, that are armored and they show up in, you know, riot gear. And it's like when, when that is the, the face that you're presenting out the gate, immediately is going to put people on defensive. And the other thing that I don't see so much anymore um, is, but, but we do have it in Sausalito quite a bit, uh, where, where I live uh, across the bridge, is just pe uh, police out actually policing the neighborhood, like walking, like the beat cops that, you know, used to like, you know, when I grew up, they would just kind of roll through, you know, on foot or, or on bicycle, you know, depending upon where you live, and to actually communicate and get to know the people of the community instead of the only time they show up is because there's, you know, there's a response situation. So you get used to seeing them not in a, you know, in a threatening manner. So it's not just, you know, every time they roll in, it's cherries going and, you know, a loud siren. And I think that oh, but they're there, Shua. They're there. They're just hiding in their unmarked cars and <laughs> waiting to nail people, specifically uh, the impoverished. They yes. are frequently focusing their efforts in there. And I think that that's where I honestly, I've never been able to confirm if there's a like a quota or anything along those lines. And, and I think that that's an argument that's gone back and forth quite frequently, but the police are there. They're just hiding and waiting to get you. And that's before there's a violent or potentially violent situation that needs to be deescalated. So that's just the attitude that they're putting out there. It goes back to what we, you know, has been discussed um, quite a bit on the, sh on the show already today. And, you know, it's perception. Uh, there, there's obviously there is systemic racism that is going on within departments that has been around for a very long time. I mean, it, it's, it's every, from the unions on down, it's every bit of this good old boy network that exists and that has been and that has been, you know, self-protecting and, and isolating itself and covering its ass. Um, and this is a point that uh, Nazil was making. Um, I almost chimed in, but you, you, you covered it so perfectly was, you know, you, you have even in situations where, you know, if, if a cop gets let go because he's had, you know, been cited or investigated for abuse of force, excessive force violations, et cetera, he can go to another town and get a, get a job carrying a gun and a badge again. And it happens frequently. You know, it's like if he's, if he's that bad to get, actually get fired from the one police department, he can literally just go get a, a job in another city. And I, how does that happen? I feel like that people see it as like a piss take, you know? Oh, there's no way a morally standpoint of our, or a moral pillar of our community would ever allow a police officer who's done something so reprehensible that they've been sacked from the police station to go to another district. People don't believe that to be true. You know, people don't fundamentally, they, they, they can't pass the idea of a police officer not being morally like true. Like it, it always points to true north, you know, and not for anything against, like not against, but like with, with Mia, it's actually saying that, uh, you know, it's, it's bad training. You know, it's, it's something that is fundamentally wrong with the institution of the police. And while I do, that is a massive element of why they have the wrongdoing. I also feel like there's an elephant and we're not acknowledging is like people who are racist are going to get into the police force. You know, there is a, a certain character of person that incorporates themselves in a place where they can legally bully other people. But it's, it's so, it's, it's such a thing for our side of the view to say, all right, I'm willing to accept that these people are 
they, they have to be a pillar of our community because otherwise we have to accept this corruption in 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 like our neighborhood like we like Isaac and I live like maybe what two blocks away from a police station we have to accept that these people are meant to be morally a, a, a standpoint you know we can go to them for any sort of domestic issue with any sort of criminal issue with any sort of problem we may have whether it's on a community level or on the actual like judicial criminal level but we accept them to be these people and and they're not like we, we we need to acknowledge that we need to acknowledge that these people are not without reproach you know we've got loads of videos online nowadays with police brutality with escalating things where someone's like just sat down kneeling down who's having a chat and they have these officers take them away because it's 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 history you know they killed the FBI killed Martin Luther King. There's, there's no way you can, you can obscure that fact of history. But we say, okay, well, that was yesterday's FBI. That was a morally ambiguous FBI. That was the 1920s era FBI. No, it's a current standpoint of generations of people saying, okay, well, your values of my forefather are going to be a, a, a somewhere where I can show where I know where I'm going. But that's not true. But we refuse to say, okay, well, hey, mate, you might be a bit racist. Hey, mate, you might be a bit wrong. Hey, mate, you might be someone who's just on the cusp of being the good idea, but you're not there yet. But again, it's like we, 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 we have the standpoint of saying, okay, well, I don't want to call you. Like so many people are afraid of being called a racist. You know, you have people online, you know, you're, you're Karens and whatever. You know, I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist, babes. You're talking about calling someone a nigger. Like you, you cannot say that at all. But because they're so engrossed in this identity of not being someone who's wrong, who's never felt real strife, and okay, well, I don't believe what you're saying is true, but they're fundamentally wrong. But educating people is where we need to be, because that acknowledging, acknowledging, and educating is is the is the path word forward. I feel. But I also think you know historically, people should look into why was the police force created in the beginning, and it was to catch slaves. And just as we carry things with us generationally, those same biases and systemic racism has been passed through those generations. And so, yes, you do find um, people with a KKK bin have infiltrated in these, you know, departments, and that you know opens the door for people to continue to perpetuate those biases and discriminatory practices against the people that are actually supposed to protect and serve. There's no like standardized testing um, from city to city, state to state for the police force. Not that not every cop is going to get the same training. Small town cops or the sheriff aren't going to get the same thing, you know, that you're going to get in a major metropolis like Chicago or New York City or San Francisco or, or wherever. Um, with, you know, certainly maybe that's something that, should be addressed, that there should be some sort of you know, standard instead of just, you know, the 18 weeks of the academy. I mean, it takes you longer to become a hair, you know, a certified hairstylist than it does to become a cop, um, which is ridiculous to, to contemplate, right? Um, but that, I think, I don't know, it's a, it's a, obviously it's a very complex problem. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that everybody is at least having the conversation about it. Um, because it's not just about race, obviously, that is a paramount right now because it seems to be so, so ingrained in, in departments around the country. But it's more about the oppression and the, and, and the systemic way in which we have militarized our, our police force. And, I mean, I've been in the military, I've been around, you know, weapons and on bases and, you know, 
there's no reason that should be in the hands of a police force. I mean, it's, it's, it sets up the community that they're supposed to be engaged with as opposition from the get-go, just based on armament. You know, I mean, that belongs in the battlefields. It, it's designed for war. And if you've got normal, everyday police walking around and they're here in that kind of heat, everything that they, their view begins to, to look at, you know, uh, the people they're supposed to protect as insurgents. And that's how they, you know, increasingly we see, that's how they're responding. And so that needs to be addressed. And that's part of the, well, it may not be completely well defined yet, that's part of the defund is like, stop arming them with shit they don't need. Because it's just a continuous escalation. If the police continue to get better and better weapons and upgraded military grade firepower, what are the criminals gonna have? And it just keeps going and going and going. And it's all, you know, directly related to the gun lobby and manufacturers and on and on and on it goes. It's war sells. And you know, if we don't have enough people to sell to overseas, well then we start arming them because it's just a big void network. Sorry for the hand. This speaks to like the mentality thing that, that Remy was talking about too. I feel like it's not only like it's racists that are joining police departments. Um, it's racist people, it's people who are already inherently violent. They don't have the best psychological test for people going in. My really good friend lives in Baltimore and he took the psychology test. He was going to be a policeman and he passed and he wasn't necessarily psychologically ready to be a cop. Like his friends talked him down and were like, um, yeah, that's cool pass, but like they don't even know you and I do. So let's think about if that's a good decision for you. And he, you know, voluntarily decided like, yeah, you're probably right. That's not, but they're not leading out like the violent people. And then, like you said, sure, they're giving them toys. I talked to this woman, actually, who, had, who was a cop for like three years. And we were talking about like the police brutality situation and just the, the use of force. You know, most cops in 30 years never even have um, a reason to unholster their weapon, much less fire. And she was talking to me about like, you know, basically, because we were talking about how you notice every single little incident, eight cop cars show up and all are there and they're just like, yeah, we're all here. What are we doing? It's because they spend 90% of their days just driving around, waiting for a call or looking for an incident. But most of the hours in their day are driving around. There's not really that much going on. We don't live in Mad Max. Like most, most communities are pretty civil, even a black one. So they're rolling around literally six, seven, eight hours a day looking for stuff to do. They don't have anything to do. They're just driving around, looking at people. And so they have all this time on their hands. And so, yeah, I'm not surprised there's so many shootings and there's so much police violence because they don't have anything to do and they're bored and they have these toys they can't use. And so as soon as there's an incident, they're like, oh my God, do I get to play with my toy? Do I get to actually do something? Let's yeah. go. And then they all go and we end up with the George Floyd. They have requirements that police officers cannot have an IQ above a certain number. And in the military, because, because right now we spend the grand majority of our discretionary federal budget on the military, not on veterans benefits, not on things that we need, but on military. Let's make sure we can have another fighter jet or something. You get these guys that go into war zones that we've created, they come back and, all of Joshua can attest to this. I mean, 
there's some kind of PTSD all of them are going to go through. And usually that, that is untreated when they come back home. And so you have this crazy amount of homeless veterans because they're not getting what they need from the government that took advantage of their life. And so some of these guys then go into the police force. And now, like you're saying, something comes up, they're in the show. This is, the, this is what, I forget to do this again. Right. Instead of protecting and serving, which is kind of seems, it seems so quaint that it seems like a fairy tale to think of police as protecting and serving. It happens all over Europe, you know? <laughs> you don't, you don't, you know, I was just in, in England with my wife last year and you didn't see any of that. You know, it wasn't like, you know, whenever you did see uh, a police car or police roll up, it was always civil and they're just out strolling a beat. Um, here, it's just, it's, I, I can't, couldn't imagine living in a city anymore, to be honest with you. Um, like, I'm, I'm just about as close as I ever want to be to like a large population center, largely because of the pandemic, but also because it's just getting crazy, you know, and everybody's fed up. And, you know, that, this starts a whole systemic conversation about poverty and how that's, you know, a war that's being waged and has been uh, in the cities for a long time. And, I mean, it's, it's, you start pulling the thread and it all just kind of falls apart. And you're supposed to believe it because, you know, it's the American dream for some people. Well, as long as we have people making a profit off of prisons, then we're going to continue to have an issue where they're out hunting. Yep. I mean, that's just, and the moment that marijuana became legal and the government started making money off the tax, the fact that there hasn't been a broader conversation about uh, the outrageous number of prisoners who are currently incarcerated for marijuana-related and, and how many of those folks are people of color. Mm -hmm. So it's all like, I don't mean to be this guy, but it kind of all comes down to how much money they can make off of us. Damn right. Yep. Well, and it's good labor, you know, it's, it's how you can legally get away with slave labor. Now you keep them incarcerated and then they make, you know, they can outbid other manufacturers, you know, it's, that's even cheaper than shit sitting to China, you know, or yeah, I mean, it's the whole thing just makes you, makes you want to pick up a rock and throw it through a window. They call it the prison pipeline, you know, it's like, okay, well, we've gone from slavery to prisons to, like, like well, Remy was saying, like, for-profit prisons, it, it, it creates an incentive to, like, incarcerate people, and what's easier to do than, okay, well, you look suspicious, let me go ahead and, you know, get you into the back of my police cruiser. It's, it's complicated, because it's, it's a fundamental identity of changing over... We're not criminals, you know, like the people, oh my days, do people talk about the statistics, you know, oh, you know, 33% of you know, black on black crime is, is, is perpetuated in these communities. And again, it's like, they, they don't call it like, you know, Chinese on Chinese crime, Korean on Korean crime, Latino on Latino crime. It's, it's a very identified American misdirection and say, okay, well, if you want to help the black community, then let's have a conversation about your black on black crime. Look, it's not like these people, are, you know, divine. You know, I, I accept that these criminal acts have to be handled, but at the same time, I'm not willing to say that these 
over police communities is the solution. Let's try and reach an area where we can trust the police. We have people of color in the police station. Where people have incentive to join the police because like I said before, we're Boris Johnson and the Italians and come back to doing menial jobs. You've got to have people who want to do the job. Otherwise you've got people who reluctantly, oh, well, I'm meeting a demographic, you know, I'm, I'm the black man in the police force. So I, 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 I have lower standards to meet. No, have people meet a standard let them have that merit of being someone who's earned it and then work from there because otherwise you're coddling and 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 infantilizing people it's okay oh they can't handle the truth let's try and ease them into it we've got no time left there's no time at the present start progress now and we can move forward and i'd just like to note all that talk about black on black crime is really interesting but the point that i always make and that i see being made is yeah right black on black crime there's white on white crime. There's, you know, people are, first of all, most likely to commit crime in their own community. And the people in their community probably look like them. So yeah, um, there's probably more people, there's definitely more black people murdered by other black people than there are the cops. But you know what happens then? Those people get prosecuted and convicted and serve some time. They get punished. Um, the issue with the police and the main issue, which is why we focus on it, is they don't. They don't get consequences. They right. get to do it and they keep doing it and they see that they keep getting away with it so they see that they keep doing it. If we ever set a hard line and was like, okay, we're prosecuting every police murder and we're going to make sure they get convicted and we're going to definitely punish them, it would be a deterrent in the future. Police would think when they pull out their gun, wow, well, Cops do generally tend to go to jail for this now. Maybe I shouldn't pull out the gun. Maybe I should pull out the taser. Maybe I should try to talk. But the more that cops see each other continuing to get away with it and the police union being so strong and helping them get away with it, yeah, they're not going to stop. Like, you know, I guarantee you, like, 50 to life or, or a death sentence is a deterrent to regular people to committing murder. Unless you're crazy and you're a criminal and you're just going to kill somebody, I'm sure a few people, you know, I, I don't know cases, but I'm sure a few people that was about to stab somebody took a little pause in there and was like, yeah, people go to jail for this. But if you know for sure you can get away with murder and you know for sure that the people in your position can get away with it, yeah, you're not gonna even think about it. You'll do it and then you'll get your administrative duty as they do. Maybe you'll get fired, you'll go to your next police department, you'll be fine. The, the sad reality when I talk about actual crime is that we have, you know, you, you steal a loaf of bread, you know, to feed your family and you can get prison time for that. You can steal 500 billion from the American people and you get a golden parachute and nobody cares. Why? Because you can write the laws and you, and you own the politicians. And until that chart's changing and we get that money out, you can't really start to address a lot of these bigger things. The largest you know, redistribution of wealth in the history of this country has happened since this pandemic started and this president's been in office. And it's revolting. But, you know, where, where do you start? Uh, another observation from a friend of mine from the Bay Area. She's a playwright. Her name is Katrin RFI. Her observation that sculptures, monuments, and streets should not be changed statues should not be taken down because in other countries, for instance, oh yeah, she's from uh, Iran. These are left the way they are because they're painful reminders of their history, which should not be forgotten, which I think is a valid point personally, but um, someone else commented, which she and I both agreed with, which was that um, 
they're not equally painful to all, which is why they need to be taken down. Well, I'll just say, you know, growing up in South Carolina, it's a celebration. You know, the people that I hear, you know, I'm back, you know, in South Carolina at the moment. How dare you take our heritage or something that we hold so dear? So there's not even a recognition that this is harmful to other people. It's like you're taking something that I treasure so dearly away from me. And it doesn't matter that this person has, has engaged in horrific behavior. And so that's where I think the issue is, is that it's not something that people look to and say, this is horrible. It's like, no, this is something we celebrate, like in this moment. Not that we celebrated what it was back then. We celebrate it like right now. What does that mean for me? for people who look like me. I feel like it's it's another element of us feeling like we have to not not coddle white people in, in, in that expression, but like just we have to say, all right, well, oh, my days, I didn't mean to make you feel like you were, you know, a, a, a legacy of what I perceive this statue to uphold. But when you sort of embolden yourself and say, oh, no, you know, Robert E. Lee, you know, all these, ca all, all these like uh, generals and whatnot are the people who who, who I expect to always be honoured, it, it becomes a situation of, okay, well, is bringing down a monument fundamentally ignoring the past? You know, nowadays we have the internet, nowadays we have systems where we can educate ourselves without the presence of a statue. So when it comes to minorities looking at, whether it's like, you know, a, a black person or a Native American, American person or someone who's been wronged by the presence, not even the presence of the statue, but what it represents, no one knew who that was in that statue. Now that it's been taken down, it has more historical relevance than it did when it was ever up. So in my opinion, I feel like taking down monuments, taking down statues is not ignoring the past. It's challenging what was the perception of the past and moving past that. The, the historical wrongdoing of, of racial inequality, you don't want to have a chat about that, but a, a monument goes down and you're ready to rally behind, oh, these, these minorities, these people who don't know what they're talking about, these people who are encroaching on my culture of a white man in America is taking down what it means to be who I am. Well, yeah, if, you're, if your identity is, is, is so incorporated, is entangled in racism, then yeah, we're gonna challenge you. Yeah, we're gonna have a conversation about it. Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna make you feel like that your forefathers were wrong because that's another element of, of, of the pride people have is like, oh, you're telling me that my grandfather, the people that fought for this country were fundamentally wrong. Well, look at Vietnam, look at all these, look, look at all these wars that are glorified by, by Americans. You know, again, like I, I don't remember who it was in, in the military, but I'm a military man. We glorify and educate thoroughly about the historical relevance of our military power, but we do not talk about the crimes, uh, about the, 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 about what we've done to the world wholeheartedly, but it's not a conversation people are comfortable with because America can't be wrong. The soldiers can't be wrong. The Marines can't be wrong. The police can't be wrong because if you, if you dismantle that identity, then their whole moral compass falls apart. Like you said, Rem, before it, it, it's, it's what, you, you can't you, you can't insult people when you're trying to educate them. It is a very, very sensitive topic for certain people. But I believe I said before that in this podcast, but earlier in, in the week was you cannot make people feel like they're small. It's a matter of people making feel like, okay, well, I need to be educated. My only issue with that is I agree that we need to remember and keep it in the museums and educate people and make that part of our history. But if you put it in the museums, then it's select 
to the people who want to go searching for that information. If it's on Google, it's select the people who want to search for that information instead of it being in your face. So there's a part of that that I'm a little still kind of torn inside about. And, you know, mostly because recently my children weren't being taught Black History Month in school. That infuriated me. Like I went to their teachers and said, can you please share this book with them? Or can you please teach them about X, Y, and Z? Why are you not teaching my children about Black History Month? Like what the hell? You know, that really pissed me off. So it's like, if we put it in the museums, we honor it in a certain way. And I get that, but we're also kind of only leaving it to the people who are interested in honoring it. Does that make sense? I actually saw this meme this morning. It says, I think most Christians would agree that Satan is an important part of Christian history. But if you put up a bunch of statues of him in your church, people might start to make assumptions about who you worship and who's, and what ideals you glorify. Um, and all that to say, like, just like Kiana, I grew up in South Carolina. And probably once a month, maybe not even that often, we used to go down to Charleston because she used to do a lot of business down there. And I remember where we were, there was this old plantation house. And I was like nine. And I totally wanted to go to the plantation house. At that point, I knew about slavery. I had watched Roots a couple years in a row, the whole thing, um, the whole mini series. And I was just like curious and fascinated and wanted to go. And my mother refused to let me go. She was like, you are not going to a plantation house right now. First of all, there was the cost because there was him. But the other part of it was she just didn't want me to go. But the other thing I remember about Charleston is they had a lot of the whites only water fountains still up. Like they had the whites only signs above the water fountains. Um, the twist though is beneath those signs, they had a plaque explaining exactly like what part of history it was and what they were trying to do. And I remember like going over by myself when my mother was busy and reading the plaque and it was like, you know, this is from whatever year, 1962. And this is, uh, you know, how when it was segregated, how there were segregated water fountains. Like they weren't actually segregated in that moment anymore, but they kept up the sign so no one forgot. I, you know, I see, I understand the reason why everyone wants to tear these statues down. Um, it is a painful reminder. It is a celebration to like, first of all, losers and then traitors. Like there's so much wrong with that. They lost. Why would you celebrate the loss? Like that, that's dumb. But also they were like uh, traitors to the United States. So then you're celebrating being a traitor. All of that is crazy. But I honestly don't, don't agree with them taking them down. And I don't agree with them putting them in, in a museum either. I think the statue should be rebranded. I think they should be there and they should rebrand them. And take off that sign that says Robert E. Lee was a great general and slap on a plaque that says this man fought for the enemy in a traitorous war that they lost for slavery. You know what I mean? Because for me, I feel like that's important. You know, a lot of white people who feel they're not racist, a lot of what makes it easy to do that is the lack of like blatant information. It's the lack of blatant history. You can kind of like forget and it's like, you know, I hear all the time, like, oh, well, that happened so long ago. Oh, well, you know, that's not even current. And it's really easy to craft yourself into this person when you can forget all that. You can just, like, pretend it didn't happen or whatever. That's what they did with Tulsa. 
Tulsa, Oklahoma was like, there's nothing to see here. There's nothing to see here. And I didn't know about Tulsa until I was a grown up. They didn't teach it in school. Ain't nobody tell you. They have no documentary or no special, nothing. They managed to hide that. And that was one of the most violent acts. That was the most violent, one of the most violently racial acts in American history. And people are just now starting to like really understand that it happened and realize that it was there. And, you know, no, we should not forget our ugly history. I don't know that we should throw our ugly history into a lake because what happens is now that spot is empty. And maybe all of us who saw that program, who saw that on the news will remember like, oh yeah, there was a Robert Lee E. Lee statue there and they took it down and they burned it. But in five years, it'll be just like it never happened. They'll plant a garden or put up another statue or build a building and it won't have ever happened. And therefore it won't be there to remind us of that ugly history. You're all for public shaming. You think public shaming is the way to education. And utterly. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Absolutely. Because that is what works. You know, people have been my housemate. She's an older, uh, she's a like 65 year old white lady. And we were talking about the protests and how violent they are. And she was just like, you know, there should be nonviolence. There should be nonviolence. And I'm like, right. But even nonviolence wasn't nonviolence. It's just that the violence was done to the nonviolent protesters instead of by the protesters. But violence is what gets the attention, no matter who does it. And it's like, yeah, quietly speaking to people in, in rooms behind closed doors has not worked. Because at the end of the day, we whisper to y'all in a closed room behind a door, and then you come out the door and do exactly what you want to do. Right? All these little white women is calling, like, they've been calling people. It's just that they got away with it because nobody had their video. You lost your job. You lost your dog. Everybody knows you did it. And all of a sudden, you notice every single time, well, you know, it's this situation that made me realize that I'm racist. It's this situation. You've been racist this whole time in quiet. But now that you're racist in public, oh, you're going to change something. I'm for whatever works. It's really cool to have people see me as a human being and care about me and respect me and love me. That's all well and good. But in spite of whether you do that or not, you need to watch your behavior. That's what I want to change. You can call me all the racist names you want in your head. You can talk to your friends. I don't really give a damn. As long as in my face, when it comes to me, your behavior is respectful and like your behavior is right. And then, yeah, maybe if you practice your behavior long enough, you'll start to see me as a person. Or not. If you don't, though, I still need your behavior to be correct. Can you put all of that in writing? Like, I love the rebranding. I love the behavior thing. Like, I want to repost all of that. Uh, Wood, can you imagine in England that statue that they threw of the slaver that they threw into the river? Can you imagine if instead of dragging it down the street and throwing it in a river, they put a big plaque on it and said, this dude owned slaves and he was a bad person. That would be such a different effect. Because Nick is still there, but he ain't no celebrated man anymore. He's like somebody said in the comments, he's in stocks now. Now we're walking past and we're like, oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, I I feel like the, the, the essence of a statue is 
honorific in, 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 its, in its deliberate statement. Uh, well, a lot of companies are actually like virtue signaling how it tries to like sort of uh, uh, be fair weather people on the Black Lives Matter movement. It's the same people with the statues. Like, okay, well, I never knew the statue was there, but now that I know it's there, now that I know it's being challenged, now I want to actively defend its presence because it's an insult to history, which I get the perspective, but it's only an outstanding way of thinking because it's being challenged. And uh, honestly, same with All Lives Matter. The only reason why All Lives Matter even exists is a direct contention of Black Lives Matter. While I, like they say, while I do believe All Lives Matter is a statement that should be true, it cannot matter until Black Lives Matter, which I wholeheartedly, unabashedly, unapologetically endorse because that is a true statement. You can look, oh, you, you can literally, literally Google this information. Look at Black Lives Matter, it's trending across from like uh, maybe what 2018 up to today. And look at the All Lives Matter trend, it only exists at moments where Black Lives Matter will trend because it's a direct contention of okay, well, yeah, mate, we know Black Lives Matter, but all lives really matter because they don't want to have a conversation where they are marginalized. Like we live this reality every day, but the idea of being someone who's not at the forefront of a conversation scares the out of people. They say that privilege, equality under privilege looks like oppression. And, I, and that's another thing I endorse is because like when you have 99% of the attention on your perspective, on your race, on your success, and okay, well, hey, mate, look, take that 98, 99, 98, bring it down to 90, here's 10% for everyone else. Oi, mate, what's going on? You know, I, I've, I used to have all of this, now I've got some of it. It's, it's, it's a slippery slope. I'm only gonna get less and less and less. And that is, an, uh, that is a challenge for white people that they have to deal with today because it wasn't minorities who made the distinction. When you made white uh, uh, forces or, 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 or fountains and they made colored fountains, that was your distinction. That was your deliberate distinction of trying to separate your pristine identity to the others. So while we do have to dredge through that history, that's on you, but we are willing to challenge it. It's okay, well, let's try and pass it. Let's just try and create a, a common ground, but it has to come from your end too. It cannot be solely on the shoulders of the, of the minorities. Well, I have a question. I mean, it speaks to what Wood said. It's like, why is it so jarring and I'm for your white counterparts to feel like equality is like they're being robbed of certain rights and opportunities when it's just like everybody just wants the chance to come to the table and have a fair shot. I think it's a scarcity mindset thing. I think so. I think it's an unconscious recognition that for everybody to be on equal footing, they might lose their ability and access to it. And I think it comes from a scarcity mindset. I, I would agree. Like I feel I like agree. people just just feel like, oh, I, I I have this allotment of people I'm allowed to hire here. Now it's being reduced to okay, well, you've got your 90% white people, you've got your Asian, you've got your black, you've got your Latino. All right, well, sort that out. Here's three spots that are, could have gone to a white person if they were more qualified, but now you've got these minorities in the area. But it's not politically correct to say something like this, but I do endorse the idea because diversity breeds progression. You know, if you're gonna take, no, no, and, and I, I hate the idea of taking away a job from someone else. Diversity is necessity that we have to incorporate within the working class, within our community, but 
people are so married to the idea of, oh, I could have had that job. Mate, if, you're, like, if, if you don't want to work sanitation, that's on you. But if someone else takes that job, it's not taking it away from you. It's someone who's filling an opportunity that is there specifically for them. We are human. We are emotional. We are people. We are thinking autonomous beings. It's not easy to, to, to say, all right, well, I want to be more diverse. But that challenge is what makes us who we are. It what makes us, it's what, it's what got us to the stars, you know? This is the problem that I see in feminism. And I kind of wish Celine was here for this. But women are always saying they want equality, right? Well, in my opinion, if you want equality, stop segregating yourself as women. Stop creating these women groups. Start including men in your groups. Like I was part of the Boss Babe Society, which is an entrepreneurial society for women owners, women business owners. And they only allowed women and they wanted to create this legacy and they wanted to create this brand of women and they wanted to bring equality into the world for women. But then yet they're segregating themselves. And I'm like, you're saying you're anti-men, but you want equality. So why not include the men into this discussion? Why not include the men into what you're saying? You be the leader still, because you're a woman and this is your, but bring the men in. Like for my Ooze studio, I had to make a conscious decision. Do I want to market towards just women, right? Like, do I want women in my art workshops or do I want to include men? And if I want to include men, what does that look like? How can I speak to them? How can I get them to get over this hump that most workshops are for women? And so that was really important to me because most of my friends are guys and I just feel like you need to take out the woman. It just needs to be us individuals. You need to take out the black and white. And I know this is going to take forever for most people to see it this way, but I, I think diversity truly will not become so diverse if we stop calling it black, white and stop segregating it so much. And we just talk to each other as humans, right? Is that too idealistic though? I mean, <laughs> I was going to say, I hear what you're saying, and I think that that's an ideal. That's what I mean by, like, sort of the legacy of history being detached from what's going on now. Most all women think are a response to a world that has been overwhelmingly all men. So you can't be a part of something, so you create this other thing for the people that can't be a part of it. That's where all Black things come from. They don't come from some like, we're just going to have our own thing. You can't be a part of it. It comes from, you had a thing we couldn't be a part of. So we created a thing we could be a part of. And I feel like everybody's moving too fast to this diversity thing. Like, yeah. I'm not saying anything should be willfully segregated for the sake of being segregated. But if I come to your house and you don't let me in your party and I go have a party of my own, it feels really weird then for you to come around, turn around and be like, oh, I can't come to your party. Um, I didn't necessarily say you couldn't, but you just told me I right. couldn't come to you. So I created a party for myself and now you mad I created this party that doesn't right. include you. Like it just right. gets weird. And like I, even with women, with feminism, it's like you, you create the women thing because you've been shut out of the supposedly regular thing because you're a woman. And then right. to, to be really quick to then turn around and be like, and now make it diverse. The tone, though, of this woman group is a little different. So, for instance, they bought this company from a black woman. And you would think in light of what's going on in the world right now that they would confess to that when they were called out on it. And they didn't. So the tone of this woman's group is not as, what, it's not as righteous as what you're saying. And same thing with this woman group. It's like, if you really want to be equal, 
yeah, go ahead, make your group, make yourselves strong, but don't ever not include men. Like there's gotta be a moment where you bridge that gap where you start to create that equality for yourself, right? Maybe that's so, the third thing though. You know what I mean? Like maybe that's right. the third thing that you go to from there. I don't right. know that like, you know, Steps. you take your women's group and then you're just like, okay, well, we've been women for about five minutes. Let's be everybody now. That's just, you know what I mean? That's kind of- That's why I said it's gonna take time. The group is, is the move toward equality. So the creation right. of the women's group, because it's been so, balanced toward men for so long it i hate this analogy but i'm going to use it anyway it's like a pendulum so it's going to swing and it's got to go it has to go the other way for a little while before anybody can consider it becoming equal it's got to go the other direction at least for a while now it's extremely difficult to figure out where the medium comes in because can you point to a, any point in history where there's been that happy medium so we're, we're kind of trailblazing new uh, territory in taking these steps. But whether it's feminism or whether we're in the Black Lives Matter movement and this uh, period of time that we're in right now, it's got to be balanced in that way for at least a little while before we can ever find a happy medium. But you, yeah. also, have, you also have to take into consideration and someone who's older than me that was a part of the civil rights movement, she, you know, brought this to my attention. It's like, okay, for black people or people of African descent in this country, they've had to deal with this for 400 years and you expect it to rectify itself in 50, 60, mm -hmm. 70 years. So it's like, we're kind of at the beginning stages of moving on this next step. So it's not going to be an overnight, you know, come to Jesus thing. It's like, it has to be a progressive. We got to start having the conversations. Then you people have to start taking action steps. People have to hold themselves accountable. So yeah, and the same for, you know, the women's suffrage. I mean, it's just been, but a certain period of time. So I think it just takes time. Yeah, there was a, a picture that was on Facebook, I don't know, like a couple of years ago. It was called Equality, and it showed a fence and like, I don't know if it was a ball game or a concert or something or just a beautiful city. I forget exactly what it was, but it was three people peeking over the fence. They were attempting to see this beautiful thing, but they were all standing on the same bench. Some were taller. So even though we all get to stand on that bench, doesn't mean we all get to see the same thing and end up in the same place. So yeah, I, I completely agree that, that this is a step. And as Salim was saying earlier, and Mia kind of reiterated, there's a, there's a fear versus what I would call love or curiosity thing that is part of this paradigm shift, which is what I actually think is what we're going through. What my parents were doing in the 60s, like was the start of something. There was an awakening that happened and that's, that's where the Civil Rights Act of, from our country started to take shape. So this, this paradigm shift has been happening, and now we're actually like manifesting some of this stuff based on reacting to these old ways which no longer serve any purpose for, for, for creativity or construction or love. They're done. And now some people who are not able to, to get above that, that little step into this new paradigm they're fighting. They're like, no, like, where do I stand? Everything that I've based my entire identity on, you're taking away. I think some of the issue 
that some people are having with the idea and the phrasing of white privilege comes from their own personal experience in life. So I think it's really difficult for somebody to accept that they have privilege when they've grown up poor, when they've grown up in a situation where they feel like they, they've gone without, and now they're being told, well, yeah, but you have privileges just because of your skin color. So it's hard for them to, to kind of internalize that, that phrasing. And I'm not really sure what a better way to put it would be because I think privilege is apt and I think it does, it does stick. I took some notes earlier that I was trying to point out, but like, I think for many of these people, life doesn't feel easier for them. And I've heard it explained that like something not feeling like a problem because it's not a problem for you is, is privilege. Um, and I think that we found a lot of better ways of explaining it rather than just calling it white privilege. And if you don't understand, then you're the problem. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to make that point that I feel that some people have difficulty accepting that they have a privilege for being white because their life doesn't feel very privileged. This guy who I was getting upset for saying certain things about white privilege, kind of along the lines of what you are, but from a less, um, less forgiving standpoint, I guess, he, he and I trained at the dojo together. We did jujitsu together and he helped me get to almost my black belt, black belt. And so we went through this ride together for a while and yes. So Nate, right. So this guy's name is Nate. And, um, you know, he started bringing up immediately Well, I was poor and a lot of people in my family were poor. Okay. So white privilege denotes both obvious and less obvious passive advantages that white people may not recognize they have, which distinguishes it from overt bias or prejudice. These include cultural affirmations of one's own worth, presumed greater social status and freedom to move by work, play and speak freely. The effects can be seen in professional, educational, and personal contexts. The concept of white privilege also implies the right to assume the universality of one's own experiences, marking others as different or exceptional while perceiving oneself as normal. This was key because he thought, because he was poor, that he was not privileged, like you were saying, Remy. These things do exist, and this is what white privilege is referring to. It's not made to make white people feel bad for being white. It is acknowledging that there are cultural powers at work that give people with white skin an advantage. There are endless examples of this occurring in our country. And Nate's response to that latter part was, this is calling us white privilege is your way of getting us to be mad at each other. It's your way of creating war against ourselves. That's like that is a fearful response in my opinion. Did you watch the Chelsea Handler, Isaac? The Chelsea Handler documentary? Oh my God. I she... have not watched that yet. So it's not her show. It's very different. It's, uh, did anyone watch it about confronting white people on racism? You did, Nazila? What did you think? Um, I really liked it and then I read some things later. But whatever. Yeah. I respect her because she knows to an extent that she's problematic and she acknowledges that. And she was willing to embrace that and talk about it. And I thought that that was big. It's like Kiana said, and like somebody else said, nobody has to know everything right now. Nobody's asking anybody to like get it right now. Like everyone throws the word woke around. Like, you know, like it's just some transformation and all of a sudden, you know, you have the force and like now you can go forth and you're all like perfect. There's no force. It's going to be a slow, tedious process. 
like there's the process from white people's end of like actually realizing privilege, acknowledging it, realizing racism, and like really the first step is admitting that you have a problem. <laughs> and she does though. She tackles the and white that, people in this exactly. documentary. And, and that's she's what like, I'm you need to fix your problem, not the black people. It's not their problem. It's, it's the white people's problem. Part of it is when the kids at that, uh, what was that? It was some presentation or like when she went and saw those black kids and they basically like checked her on her privilege and she took it. And I was okay. like, that's all we want you to do. Because the thing is, the other thing about privilege, the one really incessant trait of privilege is feeling that you have the right to be comfortable. Because we don't be comfortable a whole lot. We have never really been comfortable. It is rare that we are comfortable. And it's really hard when you talk to white people or whatever and you say something not exactly the way they want to hear it or something's done not exactly the way they want to do it. And they're like, oh, I'm uncomfortable. And it's the worst thing ever. And I'm like, really? Because I'm uncomfortable throughout the day. And I just, you know what I mean? And yes, I get, I'm used to discomfort. Whereas as a culture, white people are really not used to discomfort. So then if it is uncomfortable, it's like, wait, what's going on? I'm not totally comfortable. But I feel like, you know, that's the first two steps. The first one is acknowledging that it's problematic. Yeah. And the second is, and you're uncomfortable. Yep. And you're going to be. And that's just how it is. And maybe you'll be uncomfortable for extended periods of time. Maybe you'll be uncomfortable until we sort it out. But if you can be okay with being uncomfortable, we can get some things done. I have these conversations and it peeves me so much when you're in the middle of this conversation and people are like, well, I don't like your tone. I mean, I'm feeling really on, you make me feel like not even being an ally. And I'm like, really? So like your discomfort makes you like not want to fight for equality. Okay, cool. Like now I know, you know, but or people there's like that meme I saw. It's like the comfort zone is beautiful, but nothing ever grows there. Like, I love that. Why is your allyship contingent on your comfort level? Exactly. Like, that's just like, like, what does that have anything to do with anything? Yeah. But I will say that's the same as whether or not I'm a good worker is based upon how much I smile. Because I know oftentimes if women of color, particularly black women, are not at work because we're focused on something, we're angry. We're bitchy, when, right? all, when all we're just trying to do is, you know, we're taught to get your work done, be the best you can. But if we're not, no, 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 then I don't feel comfortable working with her because she's not like me. And so then those doors to opportunities start to close. So we have always had to make white people feel comfortable. And we have always been in situations of discomfort. And so, yeah, it just makes it harder. Like I said, when your allyship is contingent on your comfort, when you're like willing to listen is contingent on like me using good word choices. <laughs> There's this great artist called Android Jones. If any of you are interested in good, good artists, like uh, visual artists, beautiful work. And so recently Android shared a, this great painting they did of James Baldwin with the James Baldwin quote, 
Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. And as a spiritual person, part of my, uh, my spiritual understandings from a long time ago were about how we had to face things because if you don't deal with issues inside of yourself, basically it's like trying to hold a beach ball underwater to pretend it's not there. It takes so much effort because it wants to come up. It needs to come up, but there's so much effort being placed on keeping it down that you can't actually just enjoy the water. And so this was part of my spiritual understanding about how you need to take, you need to acknowledge things in yourself and be honest with yourself. That's, that's to me what spirituality is all about is actually being honest until recently, basically like lots of my social media attempts to reach out about various issues have been just just swatted down and this is again someone who is privileged but i've never felt safe around police so on social media for so long so long i have expressed my displeasure with the police and what they've been doing and specifically what they do to black people all the freaking time generally it just gets swatted away because it's almost like a conspiracy theory to a lot of uh, white people. So if I talk about maybe we should give some of that grand majority of the discretionary federal budget to education, or maybe we should give that to XYZ cause, it just gets swatted away. There are a lot of people that have seen me in this way and have generally just been like, well, he's going off on a thing rather than actually accepting what I'm talking about as being a reality. Now, I think most people are accepting it as a reality. Uh, most people of conscience are accepting it as a reality. So like Mia and Remy, like you've seen me on social media for years having these issues. What are your thoughts on how you felt when I was sharing this stuff about the evil actions of, some, of the police force as opposed to now? I'll be the first to admit that um whenever I would see, not just from you, but whenever I would see that idealism against the police, I oftentimes would swat it away and shrug it off. Like, these are the police. Are you kidding me? Like, these are the guys that, like, teach you that drugs are bad. And, like, you know, um, they're there to keep us safe. Uh, and yet somehow trying to reconcile that with the, the gut instinct feeling. Uh, you know, I just joked about this earlier today. When a cop pulls up behind you and you're driving down the road uh, and you start wondering if you, if you forgot about a massive drug deal that you did recently and the drugs are hiding in your truck, what, like, why does that elicit that? So I've been at war with that for, with myself for a little while, but yeah, I absolutely used to just bat it away. Now, I very much so can see the glaring issue with that thought process. And now that I've done a little bit more independent research, there's obviously a huge issue at hand here. Um, and I take those posts that you make uh, a lot more seriously at this point than, than I think I probably ever did before. Anyway, it is very frustrating and, and I don't want to be frustrated every day. Uh, and I want, to, I want to be a source of laughter and love as well because that's important. But not all love is warm fuzzies, you know? Some, some love is a hard slap. And so in some ways that's, that's what I serve, I guess. On a, we are inundated on a daily basis with how many foreign countries are potentially going to war with one another, which could lead to war with us. And, and just so much that we look for things that make us feel safe. 
remember what I said at the beginning of this conversation, that confirmation bias that makes us feel the warm and fuzzies so that we don't have to look at this thing. So then when somebody who does look at um, the injustices that are taking place and, and these sorts of things that are infiltrating the constructs that are designed to make us feel safe, we don't want to acknowledge it because there's enough going on. We don't need this other issue. So, okay, Isaac's just off on another one of his tangents because this thing makes me feel safe. When your safety and security is being attacked on a regular basis and then here we get to sit in a place of, place of privilege where we feel comfortable normally, we wanna lean on the things that make us comfortable. So, um, you know, again, not to make an excuse, but certainly to provide a little insight into why I think so many people refuse to open their eyes when the truth is right in front of them. What well, cipher in the matrix, right? Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> if I could just ask, you know, whether you thought this was constructive, what you thought really we came away with from this conversation? I thought it was quite constructive. Um, it was actually good to be in a conversation with open-minded people and also hear you guys' actual personal experiences, um, especially you, Bia. Like, it was really good to, like, hear your personal experience and be in a conversation with you guys. And it's just really good to talk to you all personally about it and to, like, see people actually engaged in this conversation, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I love that, you know, you, Mia, are, like, you know, fighting for your kids to get the whole story. I think that's, like, one of the most important things in this whole thing is, like, people positively influencing their kids because that's how we got here and it it really is like how we got here and so to see like you guys parents and whatnot just like you know fighting for more information at your kids school and really like like that heartens me so much and yeah it was it was a really uh animated and awesome conversation about all the things um, I really also like the, um, the insight that you gave me from your dad, because I don't know any policemen personally. Um, it's really easy, you know, to do with police like you do with the government. Like they're this big nameless entity when in fact it's like people, like I always have to remind myself it's individual people that make up these big organizations. It's like people that are dads and like, you know, pay to rent or buy a house and drive down the street and eat meals. Like it's just people. That's what I'm taking from this is to treat everyone individually. And that's what I'm walking away with today that I can work on because I'm very action oriented. So for me, I don't want to leave here without some sort of solution or action item, which is why I asked that Isaac. Like I want to know that I can go and do something or I can write a poem because I also write poetry or a blog post or something about this that maybe will resonate with other people and maybe well, give them something they can take. As far as this conversation, like the whole point of this was the conversation. This, this was, uh, so this is the action, but, um, but, of course, but of course you want to do something actionable with what you, what you discover, what you glean from things. But I, I, I just think that, you know, there was a, a thing I used to say all the time when I was younger that, thoughts are the pregnancies of existence, whatever, me trying to be poignant, but, but it's true. Things don't happen unless we think about them and start putting them into action, but it starts with the thought. And that's what this conversation is. 
is exchanging this stuff. And the curiosity of wanting to understand the other person and their race. Right. Because if you're not curious, then you're fearful. And there's a block there. So I think we did challenge each other. Like Nazila, I appreciate you for challenging me on a couple of things. Like that's how you grow. That's how you learn. It's that uncomfortability. It's the curiosity. It's getting out of your zone, right? I do enjoy Mia and Nazila's information and the tenacity and the conversation because there's such a uniqueness to getting other people to just talk to. So like, like they said, but yeah, I, I enjoy this. I'll, I'll, I'll do my best trying to tune in next week. Thank you all, all right. so much. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Good night. Yeah, all of you be easy. Have a good night. Bye.